Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In this talk from the 2022 Marxist Winter School, Fight Back organizer and member of Swan River First Nation, Lane Sheldon Poole, discusses why Marxism, which advocates for united class struggle, is the best tool to help fight for Indigenous liberation. When I went to grade school, uh, the official propaganda of the Canadian state, it was to portray basically a historical myth of, of peaceful cooperation between the Canadian and ind Indigenous people. They taught us that, you know, maybe there were a few policies which were racist, um, but this all happened a long time ago. It was isolated incidents. And the Canadian state did good things for Indigenous people, too. I think that illusion of uh, peace and cooperation was common a few years ago, but it was ultimately shattered for millions of people with the uncovering of mass graves at dozens of residential schools. And these graves have shown that the, the descriptions of abuse, of torment, of murder, and, and genocide that had been floating around in the in the popular consciousness were, were not in any way exaggeration. And they actually acted as forensic evidence uh, of the truly horrific legacy of colonization. And as a result, the indigenous movement exploded in red-hot anger. The statues of Queen Victoria and Elizabeth II were destroyed at the Manitoba legislature. The statue of Egerton Ryerson, Ryerson, an architect of the residential school system, uh, was brought down by an angry crowd in Toronto. And across the prairies, about a dozen churches were burnt to the ground. As residential schools were run by the churches, different churches in Canada, they were a symbol of colonization. Uh, and on Canada Day, or Cancel Canada Day, depending on who you are, uh, you had 10 churches in Calgary alone that were marked in red paint. One of the churches was tagged with the words, quote, we were children, and quote, our lives matter. And there was a general spontaneous movement lashing out at anything which represented the colonial system. The residential schools play a key role in the social problems that Indigenous people deal with, even today. For several generations, children were taken from their parents and raised by school staff, often nuns and priests. They were subjected to horrible abuse, and they were stripped of, of course, their language, their culture, and even their hair. Uh, indigenous children were subject to dietary and nutrition experiments in the 1940s and 50s in these schools. Uh, out of this actually came the Canadian Food Guide. But even when they weren't being experimented on, the food was described to be slop. Uh, one of my uncles who attended a residential school described being fed uh, not a single thing other than canned ham for a month straight. And there were many other tortures these children had to go through, but Suffice it to say, the mortality rate for children in residential schools was greater than Canadian soldiers in World War I. So when many of these children got out of school, began their adult lives, and, and potentially had children of their own, uh, their only experience you know, for, for childhood or uh, parenting was, was their only point of reference was their experience in residential schools. And they had to deal with an enormous cultural break from the loss of their language, uh, loss of communication even with their families and in general with their culture. Uh, I think what's important to understand about the movement last year uh, was the transformation of consciousness that it helped to accelerate, not so much for Indigenous people, but actually for the rest of Canada. We had multiple polls uh, later that summer that revealed that the majority of Canadians essentially support the Indigenous movement. For example, a majority agreed with the statement that residential schools were a policy of genocide. 
Uh, even church attendees understood why their churches had been set alight. Did one parishioner tell the news, we know it's not personal to us necessarily, we hurt them, and we understand why they're in pain. How often does that happen? That you know, a religious group would be targeted and have one of their buildings destroyed, and their reaction is, yeah, we get it. I think we can quite we can say quite confidently, you know, that there's been a massive sea change uh, in how the rest of Canada views the indigenous struggle, because this this wasn't the case, and this has an enormous potential to strengthen the indigenous movements and win major victories in the future. Now, two years ago, we we discussed the indigenous struggle at this school the last time it was held in person, uh, and out of that discussion, uh, we we came through with the the main political struggles for indigenous people. Uh, the first one being poverty, uh, and related to that, a myriad of other problems. Unemployment, incarceration, the suicide crisis. Canada regularly ranks in the top 10 in the UN's Human Development Index. But if this index was applied to Indigenous people alone, it would be more on par with a third world country. The second political issue is the lack of clean water on reserves. Uh, many reserves have boil water advisories, but it also goes further than that. I've been to reserves which don't have boil water advisories, but the water is completely undrinkable. Wherever there's a, a leaking faucet, you'll see hard water spots and rust stains on porcelain. It's a very bright, glowing orange sink. Your gut reaction when you drink it is to spit it out or throw it up. And this is water deemed safe by the Canadian state. And the third main political issue uh, would probably be encroachments on traditional lands, fishing rights, hunting rights, uh, and housing and industrial developments on traditional lands. It, but it's, it's out of these struggles that spring many of the, the bigger political movements uh, and debates in Canada, uh, which makes the Indigenous question a, a really the dominant ideological battleground for the left in Canada. Now, we know that conditions uh, and life is not that great for Indigenous people in Canada, but how do we fix it? There, there is certainly a wide variety of ideas uh, that have been proposed to solve the problems that Indigenous people uh, face today. Everything from blockades, occupations, general strikes, uh, to pr proposing that we change the way that we think about and cut our lawns. There's obviously a big disparity between those two things. Now, if we go back into the, the history and the traditions of the Indigenous movement, I think one of the most important periods for distinctly Indigenous political movements comes from the revolutionary waves of the 60s and 70s. Uh, and this is a period where actually oppressed people all around the world and the working class was on the rise. There were fierce class battles, revolutions, wars for liberation taking place, and the Indigenous movement rose uh, alongside it in that period. Initially, the, the main tendency uh, was for indigenous unity uh, and for a common cause against you know, the white man or white society. But many, but many indigenous leaders were radicalized and actually pushed further to the left, with a certain layer actually identif identifying with revolutionary Marxism. Uh, Dennis Banks, a, a leader of the American Indian movement, was described as an avid reader of Marx. Uh, and in the 1970s, there were reading circles uh, that were organized by the American Indian movement in different cities. Now, the character of the Red Power movement in this time is in a certain way sort of similar to the Black Panther Party, as you had different traditions uh, and you know, different tendencies develop in different cities. There was no national scope or national standard uh, for revolutionary work. And this was a debate within the American Indian movement itself, along with actually the, the need to broaden the struggle out to non-Indigenous people 
and link it to a broader fight against capitalism. This period was important for establishing militant traditions. In the Red Power Movement, we saw occupations of Wounded Knee, Alcatraz, dozens of, of university campuses. And more often than not, the, the protests were defeated or broken up, but important concessions were won. They forced the state to recognize how hard they were willing to fight, and the state would concede uh, control or funding, sometimes both, to certain social programs. Increased funding to school districts, uh, hospitals on reservations, fishing, hunting, or, or land rights over a given territory. Uh, and this is also when Bill C-31 was, uh, was passed in Canada, which is the law which allows Indigenous women to wary, marry white men uh, without giving up their Indian status. Now, following this period, uh, the working class and the oppressed were eventually demobilized. In some cases, like the Chilean Revolution, they were even smashed. And the class struggle receded. And the defeat of revolutionary movements in the 1970s allowed for a swing to the right. It ushered in the era of Reagan and Thatcher, uh, which meant that the, the left was left in a state of ideological retreat. And this was, of course, reflected uh, in the indigenous movement, in the American Indian movement itself and other political or advocacy organizations. Militant left-wing leaders lost confidence, lost moral authority, uh, in some cases had been arrested or even outright killed, uh, while the right wing became more emboldened. And what followed, I have a quote here to, to explain from Métis Marxist Howard Adams. I'll read it in full. Uh, it says, quote, It is common practice of imperial governments to use middle-class native elites to provide support for their value and ideology as the ruling class, provides political stability for the capitalist system. Therefore, as soon as natives start towards uh, or start action towards liberation, governments make serious efforts to bring native leaders into middle-class society. And after these leaders are co-opted, they become supporters of the government's uh, and of the colonial rule that suppresses their... In the 80s and 90s, in, in a period of retreat, uh, the ruling class funneled uh, Native leaders who may have previously been subject to pressures from the left towards politically safe channels for the ruling class. Now, the, the periods uh, where occupations and blockades were, you know, uh, were very common and sprang up all, uh, constantly, it, it was bound to wind down. And the truth is, is that in this period, the Red Power Movement did need to reevaluate its tactics and ideas. Uh, if, if it just kept exerting itself uh, and experiencing defeat after defeat, uh, it risked being completely smashed by the state. Now, in this period, the, the theoretical backdrop of the most popular ideas in the Indigenous Movement, the, the most popular ideas today, uh, were, were becoming more dominant uh, out of the schools of, of postmodernism and postcolonialism. It's certain intellectuals like Frantz Fanon and uh, Edward Said growing more and more influential, where their books were actually being read for once. Now, postmodernism is a, a school of thought which is quite difficult to, to pin down and, and explain in a concise manner. There, there is an enormous amount of emphasis placed on subjectivity, uh, you know, arguing even that all knowledge is, su is subjective. Uh, now, as Marxists, we think that postmodernism is, a, is really a reflection of the dead end and the pessimism of bourgeois philosophy in an era that capitalism uh, is undergoing a senile decay. Now, postcolonial intellectuals uh, were heavily influenced by the subjectivity of postmodernism. And, and really, they used these methods to write about the, the culture and psychology of oppressed people. And, and they often pitted 
you know, them against the colonizers or settlers or simply white people, all with the same sort of pessimism. You know, for example, Edward Said writes, uh, for any European during the 19th century, uh, in what he could say about the Orient was consequently a racist and imperialist and almost totally ethnocentric. Here he paints the entire continent of, of Europe as ethnocentric, uh, with no acknowledgments you know, of the, uh, the working class struggle that was developing in Europe at that time. It's not to mention abolitionist societies uh, or other justice organizations. And these ideas of postmodernism and postcolonialism, uh, they penetrated the indigenous struggle and the anti-imperialist struggle generally, and, and marked a, a, a change in tactics from the disobedience, the occupations, the strikes, uh, and the, even the revolutions of the past, which had won independence and, and very real concessions um, and, and directed the struggle towards a cultural, psychological, or even a, a linguistic uh, struggle against imperialism. And this process, of course, came to North America as well. Uh, there was a general shift towards these methods, especially with well, more well-off indigenous people in NGOs, uh, in academia, uh, in advocacy groups, and uh, even political groups as well. Now, there were more well-off indigenous people because indigenous people had become stratified living under capitalism. Capitalism creates class divisions both on and off reserve, and this was accelerated by some using actually programs and benefits that had been won from the government uh, in the past struggles. And so a layer of, of petty bourgeois and even bourgeois, a small layer of bourgeois it, uh, individuals was created. And, and these people dominated the, the band offices, the assembly of First Nations, uh, etc. And as time went on, their interests were in, grew increasingly divorced from the rest of the community. This, of course, happens in an uneven way on different reserves and in different communities. Uh, but the process has, has moved to the point where in 2013, there were leaked documents which showed that the Assembly of First Nations had been operating with the RCMP to offer information and surveillance uh, on certain First Nations communities because of the uh, idle no more mass protests. Now, you could imagine what sort of solutions uh, an indigenous bureaucrat with a cushy job would put forward. Instead of occupations, they might have suggested self-reflection, changing our language, diversity hires. They were happy in their positions and did not want to rock the boat. And this might be something you'll hear today quite often, right? We need to change our thinking, we need to change our language, capitalize the I in indigenous. Um, that's, you know, if you need to reflect about uh, you know your privilege and finally decolonize decolonize everything the curriculum decolonize senate decolonize congress parliament your mind diet lawn your wardrobe your bookshelf your syllabus and your tongue and those are those are just the first 10 google results now if, if you notice actually a bunch of these concepts related to universities uh, which is where these ideas are more popular but it has certainly penetrated uh, a significant amount of the population. I've even seen an article titled, It's Time to Decolonize the Decolonization Movement. But what does this actually mean? Uh, when was my mind, my lawn, but most importantly, my tongue colonized? Uh, in the 1940s and 50s, decolonization meant something. Um, it, really, it meant the end of formal colonial rule. Uh, you know, much of the, the ex-colonial world actually expelled the imperialist powers uh, and achieved a formal self-governance. Now, those are real physical events, 
but since postmodernism and postcolonialism got a hold of the term, they used it in a, in a more abstract uh, way, and and really the the definite or the the meaning has evaporated. Uh, the majority of the time, you'll hear it. Decolonization is is more of a vague, abstract notion. It's more like a a spirit or or a feeling or a vibe. At most, uh, it can be an insignificant um, activity. If you take these phrases to their logical conclusion, um, you'll get very little. Decolonizing your diet means eating different foods. Decolonizing your bookshelf means reading different books. Decolonizing your wardrobe, it means wearing different clothes. At a certain point, they even repeat. Decolonizing your syllabus means reading different books. I think we have to, you know, ask this critically. Like, what? Who is this helping? Seriously, does this help anyone get clean water? You know, does this kill mold spores that are in the walls of houses on reservations? The answer is is no. You know, it's it's an attempt to to give mundane everyday tasks a, a radical appeal. It can give an appearance or a feeling of doing something uh, without really doing anything. And even when it's taken to be more concrete, like uh, like racial hiring quotas, decolonizing uh, your university, uh, these gestures tend to benefit the most well-off layer of indigenous people. You know, the the indigenous students with the highest grades are going to be the ones from the wealthiest, most well-connected uh, families who don't have to deal with the problems of addiction, poverty, uh, a lack of clean drinking water, and mold at home. So the majority of the time, decolonization is meaningless. But when it's taken to be uh, in a more concrete form, the conclusions get worse. For example, the introduction that many young people get to the idea of decolonization comes from an essay called Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, which is a staple in university social science classes. Now, I have a short quote here, which says, For social justice movements like Occupy, to aspire to, to truly aspire to decolonization non-metaphorically, they would impoverish, not enrich, the 99% settler population of the United States. Now, the 99% figure uh, we can basically use to describe the working class. Of course, counterposed to the 1% who own and control all of the wealth. Now, when I read that quote uh, from uh, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, I was, um, I was accused of strawmanning in a, uh, a TikTok promotional video for this session. Uh, I replied that it was a direct quote. They weren't interested. So I don't want to be accused of arguing in bad faith. So I want to break this down. Would impoverishing the 99% uh, actually help indigenous people? I think if we go back to those, those three main problems, uh, the first of which being poverty. Now, if we remember the Occupy movement, um, the whole point was that the 1% had all the wealth. Um, and you know, since Occupy, actually, the, that 1% has increased its wealth. Uh, but the 99%, on the other hand, uh, they've gone the other direction. Their lives are generally worse today. The purchasing power is being eroded by inflation. Uh, workers are working longer hours. Um, and, and just feeling the daily squeeze and grind from capitalism. So impoverishing the 99% uh, would mean uh, you know, taking wealth from those who have very little, if not no wealth to give. It'd be like robbing Peter to pay Paul. I'm not opposed to robbery in principle, um, but we should take wealth from those who have taken it from the working class. We should rob Jeff Bezos to pay Paul. The fact is, is that impoverishing the working class would not end the boil water crisis. 
Neither is it the working class who is driving encroachments on indigenous land rights. Land defenders in Wet'suwet'en territory are not struggling to drive out homesteaders and campers. They're struggling against the 1%, a massive energy company, which is owned and controlled by the ruling class and aided by the state. The conclusion in decolonization is not a metaphor, is that the interests of indigenous people uh, are opposed to the interests of non-indigenous people. It creates and elevates uh, a supposed antagonism between these two groups to being the primary division in society. But this is not the fundamental division uh, within capitalism. In fact, there are indigenous capitalists who benefit from the exploitation of indigenous workers and non-indigenous workers. And actually, thanks to the explosion of the indigenous movement last summer, the Canadian Liberal government has actually fast-tracked its project of trying to actually grow this group, fostering an indigenous ruling class. Uh, and actually co-opting indigenous leaders to, to give it a veneer of change. Um, now, to cap off the point about decolonization is not a metaphor, I think it goes without saying that impoverishment uh, of the working class is bad. You know, work, working people, you know, even in the richest countries, Canada and the United States, are struggling with, uh, with inflation, uh, with lower wages, uh, etc., and this idea to actually impoverish them would result in a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, and what this does, the, you know, this essay, is it actually serves to divide uh, Indigenous people from non-Indigenous people. Um, now, today, the, I think the absence of a, a strong layer of Indigenous capitalists uh, presents a serious political problem for the ruling class. The majority of Native people have, have had little faith in the, this Canadian state, and there, there have been blockades, occupations, and protests uh, from Indigenous people since the 70s, which ramp up and wind down in different periods. And now that they are once again ramping up, uh, the, Can the Canadian ruling elites are you know, now actually ramping up their project uh, to co-opt Indigenous leaders. There are, are numerous examples, but the one I'll go with is a Calgary-based group uh, called Project Reconciliation, which is seeking Indigenous ownership uh, over the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Um, now, the fact is, is if this was achieved, it would, in all likelihood, it would make it easier for the ruling class to convince more Indigenous people uh, that pipelines, industrial projects, or development would benefit them. They would be able to point to specific rich, influential Indigenous people uh, and argue that they're bringing wealth back into our communities and point to them as role models. But this won't do anything uh, to, you know, again, stop the main political problems for Indigenous people. Trans Mountain could not be built without being in clear violation of 12 Indigenous nations, regardless of whether or not the handful of people who own it are Indigenous or not. There's, of course, the example of Ken Hill, the Indigenous billionaire, uh, who has a $6 million car collection, uh, while most of his reserve does not have access to clean running water. An indigenous bourgeoisie would have more in common with a white bourgeois uh, than they would with a regular uh, native person. And in fact, we've seen this actually from the experience of, of labor uh, disputes uh, on reserves. In 2003, there were a thousand workers in Ontario on reserve that filed for unionization. And the band responded by saying that Ontario's labor code did not op, uh, apply to them on reserve. And, you know, organizations and, and corporations uh, like these don't give Indigenous people control. They give certain Indigenous people control. 
you know, a very select few, the worst ones, actually. And this is what the government really means when they speak of reconciliation. It's not so much reconciliation of, uh, with indigenous people as a whole or reconciliation you know, of past historical crimes, but rather reconciliation with a small layer of indigenous bourgeois uh, who have an interest in keeping working indigenous people uh, away from political life and stay in, in, in poverty. They want to be able to head off a militant movement before it springs up. And this is very similar, actually, to the argument for uh, the need for role models or represent representation. If there were lots of successful indigenous uh, business people, entrepreneurs, socialites, influencers, it would be easier to convince native kids who, who come from nothing that one day they too could be successful or famous or rich. Uh, and once again, this does nothing for the vast majority of working and poor indigenous people. The representative of the Canadian head of state uh, is an Inuit woman, uh, and she was named as a concession when churches were being set on fire. Uh, since then, I have not heard a single thing from her. And it's a very naked example of, of Trudeau's tokenism and trying to you know, present a progressive veneer. Uh, and I think to come to one last idea that I want to outline um, in, the, in the movement is settler colonialism is it's quickly uh, being set up as the, the main framework uh, as in opposition to Marxism. But what you'll hear is that we need a, a settler colonial, a lens understanding settler colonialism or, or a recognition. It never goes past you know, things which happen in the brain and thinking. Now, the, the settler colonial theory, it, it comes from uh, post-colonialism. But, but I want to note here that, that a lot of the ideas uh, that you, you will hear uh, will appear as amalgamations of each other, especially when confronted in the movement. People will generally take bits and pieces that resonate with them or that may be useful to them. When we discuss identity politics, we, we talk about it generally as being a product uh, of postmodernism. And not all postmodernists would agree with an identity politics-based approach. And I think most people who use identity politics-based arguments would not consider themselves to be postmodernists. But in settler colonial theory, it seems that we get the worst of both worlds. Um, and now, to, to explain it, I have a, a quote from Glenn Coulthard from Redskin White Masks. Uh, the title itself is actually a play on Frantz Fanon. He says, a settler colonial relationship is one characterized by a particular form of domination. That is, it is a relationship where power, in this case, interrelated discursive and non-discursive facets of economic, gendered, racial, and state power has been structured into a relatively secure sediment set of hierarchical social relations that continue to facilitate the dispossession of indigenous people of their lands and self-determining authority. And this is actually characteristic of, of postmodernism, that uh, it's, it's unintelligible almost intentionally. I've read that quote a dozen times. I never seem to get closer to understanding it. After about 45 minutes of analyzing, I ended up reducing it down like a fraction. And what I've gathered is that a settler colonial relationship is a form of domination where power uh, is used to facilitate the continuous dispossession of indigenous land. And often there, there's implied a kind of permanent process. Like the land keeps getting stolen, but it somehow will never run out. Or that the relationship uh, could never possibly be changed. And settler colonial countries are going to continue existing like that forever. Although that is not unanimous among the proponents of uh, settler colonialism. Uh, and once again, I think we see that 
culture is, is something which is elevated uh, as a driving force in society. But with non-Indigenous people having a, a racist or, or a white supremacist culture, uh, and an insatiable or innate drive to steal indigenous land. Uh, and I think this is mistaken. Uh, we have to ask, why did Columbus make the trip to North America? Or the Americas, actually, rather. Uh, was, he, was he looking for land? Was he going to try and be the best white supremacist? Now, upon interacting with the indigenous people, you know, it's, it's true that Columbus is almost certainly racist. But the primary motivating factor for Columbus was to get in on the spice trade, which was incredibly profitable at that time. And when Columbus landed, uh, what did he take? Did he steal a plot of land? Did he start a homestead and get a dog? No, uh, he wanted gold. Uh, and when he came back with a lot of gold, a mad scramble began for more voyages. And, and this process of colonization of the Americas kick, uh, took uh, kicked off. This is because the money economy was, was already in full swing in Europe. Why go for spices if you can get what you, what you want out of those spices in greater quantities? Uh, it took time before there was a drive for the settlement of the land. Really, it came after the development of, of the Canadian and American bourgeois nation state. In Canada, it came after uh, the period that was dominated by the fur trade ended. And the Canadian bourgeoisie uh, wanted to create an agricultural base. Previously, there, there had been no demonstration of an innate drive uh, of white people to steal indigenous land. And in fact, during the settlement of Western Canada based on the Dominion's Land Act, a quarter section of land could be purchased for what is basically $200 today. They had to offer land at this cheap of price to incentivize people to move out to Western Canada. For the condo dwellers, a quarter section is about 160 acres. Especially in the West, like the, the ruling class pushed settlement to increase agricultural output to feed its uh, burgeoning industrial base in the East. And we can see in the, in the history of colonization, at every stage, the process is driven by the needs of the ruling class, whether that was towards fish, fur, land, cotton. Uh, they all served a need for the ruling class at a given time, which was usually uh, simply to profit. Now, since that time, things have changed. Uh, Canada is, is now a modern bourgeois nation state with, with a very poor relationship with indigenous people. But I think this relationship could simply be described as, as imperialism or capitalism. Once again, the, why did the state ram through uh, a pipeline through, through in, um, Wet'suwet'en territory? Uh, it wasn't about settler colonialism or a clash of cultures or an innate drive to, to steal indigenous lands. It's because the ruling class wanted to make money, to get commodities to market and to, to make surplus value. And they don't care about whose toes they step on. And I think the, the most um, toxic aspect of settler colonial theory is it's the assertion that white workers have an interest in maintaining the current system or that they, they benefit from the poverty uh, or the exploitation of indigenous people. This is very defeatist and pessimistic. Uh, this is literally what the far right says. The thing is, is that the far right thinks it's a good thing. In reality, it's not true, and it's a bad thing. Uh, you know, seeing this leads them down down a, a demoralizing and pessimistic road, where there there is no hope, where the situation is already lost. But thankfully, it's not true, because capitalism is a great equalizer. It equalizes everyone who does not control or own a significant amount of wealth. Everyone who has to work for a living, which includes the vast majority of indigenous people and 
uh, non-Indigenous people towards poverty, towards precarity, uh, and towards socialist revolution. The reality is that non-Indigenous workers have no interest in maintaining the oppression of Indigenous people. They have no interest in ramming the pipeline through Wet'suwet'en territory. The profits that would come from that project would go to the ruling class and the ruling class only. And the worker, the working class, uh, you know, indigenous and non-indigenous workers have everything to gain from uniting as a class. And uh, of all, I think the the frameworks or or the ideas, settler colonialism gets away with saying so many things which are simply false. For example, the inventor of the term Patrick Wolf, he once said that invasion is a structure and not an event. Think about that for a second. The literal opposite is true. Uh, or if we, even if we think about the terms uh, like settler. Uh, now, this term meant something very concrete in the past. From the 19th to 20th centuries, you know, in, especially in Western Canada, uh, there were settlers who literally created permanent settlements. And it was not really a glamorous life. It involved homesteading, building houses, farms, digging wells. Uh, they maybe bathed once every 24 years rode horses as their primary method of transportation. Uh, now, when, when somebody calls you know, a white person today a settler, it's, uh, it's, it's supposedly very radical. It's, it's got a little bit of a sting, uh, but it's, it's simply inaccurate. Uh, you know, who, settlers um, you know, they had construction and farming skills. I don't think very many people today know how to break a horse or build a timber frame house with nothing but an ax and a handsaw. You know, I like to think of myself as something of a, a mountain man. Uh, but I know I can't do that. But more importantly, is the people today are not settling anything. They may very well be the descendants of settlers, uh, but were born here into industrialized Canada, living into per in permanent settlements. Now, I've spent a lot of time um, attacking ideas, other ideas, and, and not outlining good ideas. And unfortunately, the reason for this is because in the past 30 or so years, uh, there have not been a ton of victories. This is true in the indigenous struggle and even in the working class struggle. Now, I'm an Oilers fan, uh, so I know a thing or two about losing. Um, but times are changing. Uh, you know, things are uh, transforming quite rapidly. You know, the Oilers fired their coach. Um, and, you know, consciousness among indigenous people and non-indigenous people alike towards this issue and towards class is different. In the 1960s and 70s, in the height of the Red Power Movement, there, there was something missing, which was a, a barrier to the struggle, which was solidarity. It was, there was a lack of sympathy from the, the rest of the public. The fact is, is that in North America, indigenous people are a minority of the population, and, and a very small minority, in fact. And because the vast majority of indigenous people are working class, they have very little power on their own. A, a united and conscious working class has an enormous amount of power. Um, workers make society run. They're numerically the largest class. They all share the same fundamental interests, regardless of race or orientation. And with a certain level of consciousness and a militant working class leadership, there, there's nothing that could stand in their way. But indigenous people represent only about 5% of the working class. They cannot overthrow the state on their own. The state, which is, has proven that they, they want to go, they, they want to do everything to avoid providing clean water, the most basic conditions of dignity, which is why we need a united struggle of all working class and op oppressed people. And this is something that the ruling class is terrified of. 
Uh, there, there was evidence from the solidarity movement uh, in Wet'suwet'en in 2020. Uh, oh, no, I apologize. That's the, the wrong thing. Um, it's actually from a 2015 Government of Canada report, uh, which, which said the ideological and physical focal points uh, of Aboriginal resistance and extraction progress um, it expressed a, a concern that it would converge uh, with the labor movement, essentially, or other social movements. I think we should ascertain that there, there's potential in the nightmares of our enemies. Because the government is right, actually. The convergence between the indigenous movements and the labor movement would be a nightmare for them. As Marxists, we, we defend things which strengthen the working class as well as its unity. Uh, the ideas of Marxism are unifying. Uh, we promote you know, the broadest possible unity, uh, and we, convince we try to convince the class to fight in its interests regardless of race, orientation, religion, etc. And this is you know, contrary to some of the other ideas discussed today. The ideas of decolonization, of settler colonialism, of postmodernism, if you notice, they all emphasize difference. They seem to, to want to be a wedge between the working class and indigenous people. And they have an effect of, of weakening and disuniting the struggle. And a weak, struggle is a, a weak struggle is, of course, less likely to win. Uh, I'm tired of losing. Uh, and so we need unifying, militant ideas if we want to win. And those ideas are Marxist ideas. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.